0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the show, the big show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets, your one-stop, all-purpose, multi-tool for Lutheran theology. I am Pastor Don Riley, the techno-viking, joined as always by Coffee Roaster extraordinaire and uh, Predator, Mm -hmm. not to be confused with To Catch a Predator on NBC, but Predator, Pastor Christopher Gillespie.
1: Producer-editor, for those who uh, want to understand that better. And uh, I might be dangerous, but I won't cut you, so there you go.
0: Just with your wit. <laughs> Sometimes it comes out. I don't know. Usually it's bright right, right. It's very subtle, mm. very dry, very dark. Mm. Yes. I'm talking into a new mic. Did it's you notice? Very nice. Yeah. For those who can't see, it's a very, very shiny mic. Very it's nice. a, it's an actual legitimate broadcast microphone. I dig it. Yeah. And uh, I have one similarly behind
1: me, sitting on your shelf, waiting, lacking for a cable, <laughs> cable and a part. Um, so that That's, right, plug into That's right. Yeah. We'll get there.
0: Yeah, no, it's all good. Uh, one, uh, I have to make a correction because in the last podcast, the last Obermann podcast, for some reason, I completely mind blanked and referred to Erasmus as being Belgian or from Belgium. He's not, he's Dutch he's yeah rotterdam is is rotterdam's in the netherlands Netherlands, right and so uh boy genius was listening to the podcast in the car on the way home from muay thai and goes (laughs) um dad rotterdam's in the netherlands i said i know he goes yeah but you just said he was from belgium i'm like (laughs) go yeah and i left it but mm, i wasn't it's all good i was like "What?" it's all good he knows what he's talking about whatever i do know what i was talking about i just for some reason i was just i I was blanked you know it triggered me and i started thinking about belgian food and that was and that. We, yeah we went down that rabbit hole because then i started thinking about belgian waffles and scotch And like
1: netherlands food like
0: what what are they Dutch oven <laughs> what 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 is what do you have for what do you have as far Dutch as Dutch food. cuisine yeah if you're from the netherlands please uh comment or leave a message for us what is your favorite cuisine yeah. Or maybe one of the Norwegian listeners will let us know what the Netherlands people think. There's like. no good cuisine from Norway. No. My wife my wife's parents are uh Swedish and Norwegian. Mm. They they think salt and pepper is exotic.
1: Yeah. Drove by IKEA yeah. the other day, thought about saying, Hey, we should go for lunch and then I'm like
0: mm. Mm. No. 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 Any any culture that thinks that rubbing lye all over fish and then leaving them dry outside <laughs> an ice house and then eating it? No. It's inventive. Creative. It's something. It's something, right? It's creative. It's
1: yeah. Just make sure you wash it all off before you. (laughs) How do we preserve these fish? Right. Yeah. The the drying smoking thing was
0: pretty Uh, good. In my community, Mm. there is an ancient tradition called klub, which is essentially bread made from blood flour. That's pretty much it. Tasty. It. Yeah, it's not. Uh-uh. I tried. I really tried. I tried to assimilate into the culture. I said, I'll try it. And then as soon as I had one bite, I said, you know, in the Bible, uh, eating uh, an animal with the meat with the blood still in it is technically forbidden by God. There you go. And I definitely think this bread qualifies under that rubric. I don't <laughs> that- <laughs> normally selectively use Leviticus, but this time I'm going to. <laughs> it was, yeah, no, it's not. Anyth- again, imagine flour. You're, you're, you're there. It's the end of the winter, Maybe. The fruit cellar is looking a little bare. So you're thinking to yourself, well, how can I stretch what I've got? Mm, there you go. How about if I just bake blood into flour and call it klub? <laughs> What's funny too is nobody even knows what that word means anymore. Huh. <clears throat> Excuse me. But again, klub would be, I think, traditionally it comes because we have Norwegians to the north and Germans to the south. I think it's a Norwegian dish. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. So, yeah, you get that stuff. Yeah. But anyways, I apologize. I, I know Erasmus is Dutch. I know that Rotterdam's in the Netherlands. I apologize profusely for my But he lived inception. in England,
1: so it doesn't really matter at He lived point. everywhere, yeah. Yeah. So you there off. we go.
0: That's right. So this week, we're going to dive back into Obermann just because we can, and it's fun, and it's a good conversation, and we got some positive feedback on the Obermann podcast. Yes, we did. From y'all, which was helpful. Uh, we enjoy and appreciate the feedback. This so is now know. the third Obermann podcast. Is it the third? I thought it was the fourth. Or is it the fourth? I think it's the fourth. Yes. It's a classic. Right. <clears throat> but anyway, so we're going to talk a little bit more about Erasmus, who's originally from China, and Luther, who was Flemish. And <laughs> <laughs> this is the fourth, yes. Maybe we should we should just have an alternative Lutheran, as Lutheran as it gets podcast, where we just make stuff up as we go. <laughs> and this would be... Well, never mind. Any different than than what we already do? Mm, yeah, no, right. Mm. That would be on purpose if we did it that way. So we're going to dive back in to Orman uh, Luther, uh, God be- or Luther God between man and the devil. No, Luther man between God and the devil. There you go, cracking good start. We're in life between God and the devil on page two hundred and fifteen to begin the Reformation in peril, and this is kind of jumping off where we stopped last week. Uh, discussing the debate between Erasmus and Luther.
1: On free will. And now... Bondage of the will. On the
0: free will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Captivation.
1: Go back and listen. Episode 36. There you go. I'll link it in the show notes.
0: Nice. We've been doing this for... Oh, wow. Okay. 36 episodes. I know. We're cruising. Oh, you should look at stats. I haven't even looked at stats. I bet you (laughs) there's a lot of you listening. Thanks for listening. I hope so. Yeah, thanks for listening. We appreciate it, and we love you for it. But we're going to jump off uh, with the Erasmus and Luther debate, but Obermann is going to kind of, again, go into a summary of that, uh, which leads into some other areas that he wants to cover. And um, it's interesting stuff, I think. So I hope you enjoy this. Mm -hmm. So page 215, Luther, man between God and the devil. Though the questions Erasmus and Luther labored and clashed over seemed to be lofty ones, they were to become basic issues throughout the course of the Reformation and modern intellectual history as a whole. We talked about this briefly, mm-hmm. or at least alluded to it, but in in that day, Luther was considered popularly to have won the debate between the two. Yeah. But as far as the war goes, Erasmus definitely won because he really is the OG of modern pro- evangelical Protestantism. Yeah. He is the proto-evangelical, as some scholars have said.
1: Yeah the it's, the the nature of the will is um, still a debate among us and. Mm-hmm. But but the idea that there is some capacity um, to choose God, love him, you know, have faith mm-hmm. in him, uh, that still holds on.
0: It does, because of, like we talked about, the, the, the persistence of humanism, secular humanism today, but mm-hmm. nonetheless still humanism, humanistic. And at the core of that, yeah, it's a moral movement. Yes, it is directed towards the quote-unquote humanities, going back and not only reading the original sources, but poetry, literature history art that kind of thing yeah even the sciences philosophy in particular in erasmus stating flat out this is a christian philosophy and then you look at secular humanism today there is at the core this emphasis on the innate goodness of people yeah and there is or at least that, the potential of people to be good uh, and there is that danger maybe danger or challenge that
1: um we also often conflate philosophy and religion they're they're kind of hard to distinguish. Sometimes people's <clears throat> philosophy mean, very becomes much so. a religion, right? Think right. Think about uh, oh, that favorite famous saying. You know, um, God helps those who help themselves, right? Exactly. And it, yeah. It's a philosophical statement. It's not a scriptural statement, but it right. gets
0: incorporated and then becomes assumed as a religious statement later. Right. Well, even more pointed, the fact that we translate tetelestai die is perfect.
1: Oh yeah, in, it is perfect. <laughs> it's not.
0: Yeah, and it's that is not what it means at all. And as a consequence, we, we often, we see tetelestai, every reference to Good Friday is translated right out of the Bible mm. because we pick up this philosophical definition of the word, so to speak, or at least we import a philosophical definition, perfection, which is actually a platonic ideal and has no place actually biblically. You're thinking of like be perfect as your Yeah, be the perfect as your father in heaven is perfect, or any time in the New Testament epistles, there's a reference to perfection or perfected. Or oh,
1: run the race uh, to complete it or something like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's that The the root there is tetelestai. Hmm. It is finished or complete, fulfilled. It doesn't mean perfect. Perfect is a philosophical term. Complete or fulfilled is something altogether different in relation to the cross. Yeah. It's describing an event that is done. Right, a, a perfect verb, so to speak, a past tense event that has present tense consequences that continue into the future. Yeah, and that's the challenge with translation, is that you come mm-hmm. with
1: your presupposition, sometimes philosophical, about the right. will, and then you right. apply that presupposition to the way you right. understand the text, or even render the text in English.
0: Right, and going back to your point, be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect, the destruction that that has wrought in the church on Christians, mm. because it is always, as you said, in a humanist sort of way in a human sort of way we always want to interpret that as be obedient as your father in heaven expects you to be obedient which is to be perfectly obedient according, to be perfect. and according to the 10 commandments probably according to the 10 commandments exactly and that gets them to well i can't do that that's impossible but as long as i try to do my best mm. god will do the rest god helps those who help themselves mm-hmm. which gets us into medieval catholicism hmm that grace helps get me going grace helps me keep going grace keeps pulling me along grace catches me when i fall
1: yeah and that expression is uh i think rightly attributed to ben franklin um so you i mean you mm. see that <laughs> the link between american deism at the at the yes. turn of the revolution and and then medieval catholicism they're mm-hmm. not as different as no, one would really. hope or expect yeah
0: right and then yeah what ends up happening is you have this moralistic therapeutic deism but yet you you slather it with jesus talk hmm. or jesus but frosting in, as i heard one uh jesus frosting i like that better that's nice it's
1: like we we have uh, really humanist secular education with jesus frosting on top
0: you know, in some of our schools or many of our schools i like that that's good mm-hmm. jesus frosting i had to use that from now on yeah a taste of <clears> jesus <throat> excuse me so that's essentially what comes out of this is Erasmus is the proto-evangelical. He is – give Erasmus the, on the freedom of a will to any Protestant mm. or Lutheran or Roman Catholic today and just wait and see how much of what he says they agree with. I think we talked about it, but the reason why there's such agreement
1: mm. is that it it's corroborated by our own – Um, sinful nature right i mean this is the Mm -hmm. kind of religion that we would want or that we'd like to
0: believe by by nature exactly we want to believe that this is the truth Mm -hmm. and then we make any move that we can to get around the stumbling block which is the cross yeah yeah god's own word well yeah we go searching for better words and yeah that's Mm -hmm. the thing Mm -hmm. versus be perfect as your heaven is or your father in heaven is perfect and then change that to tetelus died be died as your father in heaven is died. Now we have a direct reference to Good Friday and Golgotha.
1: Yeah. And then and then that uh, ends up backfilling like into baptism being a, c- right, a, exactly. a completed act of salvation for, for right. the Christian. And think
0: about that. That's such a great point and such a really important point, especially pastorally, is if baptism is a die mm-hmm. moment, it's a one and done is complete, then we can't use it as an excuse to motivate the will. Yeah. This is the starting block, but once you start to run the race, you need to supplement your Christian journey, your Christian life, your Christian work with all these other things. Whereas the the best of our say like <clears throat> hymnody, me.
1: um would refer to baptism as present tense. Um, you are right. baptized, you or I right. am
0: baptized into Christ. Right. Well, think of like God's own child. They gladly say it. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of hymns. Nowhere in there is there any even an implication that this is just the starting point for the Christian life.
1: Right. Well, and that's, I, maybe that's why we hang, hang on to so desperately onto the rite of confirmation as being like this right. completion of baptism. It, mm-hmm. They even use that language, I think, in like uh, the rubrics attached to, bapti- uh, attached to confirmation. Like, mm-hmm. uh, wait a minute, baptism wasn't done? Or this is, right. this is a, hmm, uh, we're, we're making sure Jesus did what he said he was going to do at baptism
0: right. kind of idea. And at least in Lutheran church, if you want to see a death match, bring this up. Yeah. Bring confirmation up and criticize it. Mm -hmm. Whether the congregation members tear after you or whether the pastors tear after you or the professors at the seminary tear after you or district or synodical officials tear after you, you can get into a knockdown, drag down battle over. Probably the only thing worse would be to go after the ladies groups. Yes, exactly. Don't attack the altar guild or LWL. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's sacrosanct.
1: (laughs) And generally, not really causing any problems so just right exactly it's 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 benign benign whereas confirmation i mean everyone acknowledges it's malignant yeah everyone acknowledges (laughs) that it actually causes it it it, yeah it is a significant challenge for us that we have this i would
0: call it a stumbling block to faith
1: well, because we have this graduation mentality, right? Exactly. But yet, if if you had the audacity to um, suggest like a change or reform to it, or to, right? Like, know. hey, maybe we shouldn't have them wear ordination stoles. Mm, yeah, maybe. Or um, <laughs> maybe we should talk about like not being age specific, but being exactly um, right
0: more. Just- <clears throat> or how we keep jacking up the the age for confirmation the age of consent, so to speak, from, it goes from eight years old to 10 years old to 12 years old. In some places it's 15 or 16 years old. Yeah. I mean, I think there's probably, it's
1: probably right, this is a tangent, but it's probably right to lament the lack of uniformity in practice among the churches. Absolutely. I agree. There's a practical implication to that. It's challenging. Like if you Well, think
0: about it this way too, to your point, when, let's say kids from your church go to a different church Mm -hmm. to go to their friends at Confirmation and they ask, well, pastor, how come they're not required to memorize stuff?
1: Oh, Right. I was thinking more like e- even like, uh, <laughs> you know, you maybe have eight year olds communing in your congregation right. and then they go visit another congregation are like, no, right. you and don't commune can't until commune. you're
0: 13. Right. Exactly. Or something yeah. like that. Uh, it
1: gets to be a challenge pastorally. It
0: really does. Or yeah, you have eight year olds doing communion or you have four year confirmation versus two. Yeah. The lack of uniformity creates even, I think, more confusion,
1: right so to speak. But on the other hand, um, really, the the question is where ought you commune and who do you commune with? Mm-hmm, right. And generally and, speaking, that's your parish, your
0: pastor. You know? Right. Absolutely. Well, and what ha- ends up happening has happened to a girl in my congregation. She was eleven, and she was told she was too young to uh, commune because she didn't understand.
1: Oh, at another. And parish so her
0: parents called. Yeah, and so her parents called out the pastor and had her confess all the question, Christian questions with their answers, mm. and then asked him if he could do it, and he said no. And then they asked if he wanted the, if he wanted their daughter to commune him. Then, <laughs> ouch! And he was going to call and, and and complain to their pastor until he found out who their pastor was. <laughs> yeah, and then said, "Ah, we'll just let it go." Yeah, yeah. It is. It's unfortunate, but it, it goes to the point that Erasmus won the war because we we see what Luther has to say about. Um, Catechization, mm-hmm. and and we see the way it was done during the Reformation, and the way in which we've adapted to that has actually been to strain, con- you know, adult, or I'm sorry child's catechesis, we strain it through rationalism, orthodoxy, romanticism, pietism, secular humanism, these philosophical presuppositions. And we do it uncritically. We mm-hmm. just assume this is the way it's always been. Yeah. But it, well, the fact of the matter is, you know, we're 500 years into the Reformation mm-hmm.
1: and it was only reintroduced about 200 years ago. Right, exactly. So the first... Three hundred, almost three hundred years of the Lutheran mm-hmm. Church said, uh, "No, we're not doing that because of all the right. philosophical baggage and exactly, you know, even even mm-hmm. to Erasmus's point, you know, this this right. whole uh, the the will, um, and that's mm-hmm. part of it. You know, do you is. do it, you want to be confirmed? You know, like,
0: we assume children are essentially free mm. to make choices, and then we try and bind them with these these borders that we put up these walls that we put up around them versus assuming that they're in bondage to sin and death Mm. and cannot free themselves and they need to be set free to be christians and to kind of wrap this rabbit trail up and bring (laughs) it back around to the text when people complain that i do communion right away Mm -hmm. after they've been instructed in the ten commandments and the lord's prayer and they've we've gone through the christian questions with their answers and then well why would they come back for the next three years of confirmation when they're already communing like why don't they're going to leave you know and I pointed out to my congregation actually last week because the question came up. I said, since we switched to four-year confirmation and we do the communion the way that we do it, I've lost one confirmand total. Mm. Yeah. Before that, when we did two-year confirmation, I made them wait two years. They had to go through the testing. Our, our, we lost 90% of our confirmands. After confirmation. I I would suggest it's just, uh, you know, mentally it
1: becomes like the carrot at the end of the stick. Exactly. Uh, Well, it's
0: graduation. Like you said, mm -hmm. we get put on the white gown. We put on the red stole. You get flowers, boutonnieres. We have a big cake. It's pomp and circumstance. And what turned me around is reading Wilhelm Lea on this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And him saying, never have confirmation Sunday on Sunday. (laughs) It should always be Thursday or Saturday. And there's reasons for this. And primarily it just draws away from Christ. It's not a pageant. The divine service is not a pageant. Yeah, is what he says. <clears throat> it distracts from the table. It distracts from um, everything that makes church church. Essentially, well, it's like says. we talked about before.
1: I mean, the child being examined, absolved, mm-hmm. and welcome to the table is should be actually kind of a. It is extraordinary, but it's really ordinary too, right? Right, it's, it's
0: extraordinarily ordinary, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. And which is what I say on communion. Uh, when we do communion, we do it on Monday, Thursday. And that's what we do. As I, When I stand up before we begin the service, I say this is the most extraordinarily ordinary thing you'll ever do, mm-hmm. which is why we're doing it here and not on Sunday morning. First of all, because it's Easter. But when you come to church on Sunday, we're going to have the sacrament again and the week after and the week after for the rest of your life. Mm, And it's going to become ordinary. And if we do this with balloons and pageantry and albs and stoles and cakes, you're going to come back next week and everybody that was here is not here anymore. And you're going to be here looking around going, okay, this isn't special now. Mm. Why Why was I made to feel so special last week? Whereas this week, it's just what we do. Yeah. And that's what's extraordinarily ordinary about it. It's for you, but it's not particularly about you. (laughs) Right, right. And yeah, I just, I think inculcating the relationship between pastor and child, um, taking your time, slowing down and really allowing the conversation to take root around catechetical issues, matters, questions, um, letting it breathe, so to speak, not rushing, not jamming your way through it so that you can graduate them and not creating this attitude or this philosophy that you're all basically good kids. We just need to, to get you ready to understand what you believe, yeah. to know the right and wrongness of faith. And there is something too, and I'm not saying there's not, because hmm. obviously a cate- large part of catechization, for me anyways, is doing apologetics and explaining to kids who have no Christian friends, this is why we, we you know, like we were just saying, this is why we read the first commandment and turn other things into gods. Right. Or this is why we, we say, well, we can't have communion every Sunday because it's not special then. Right. Why would you say that? Right. And really, that's why that's how Erasmus won. Erasmus mm-hmm. won the argument because we're still having this argument, and the answers that we come up with are Erasmus's answers, not Luther's. And even that idea
1: of completion then being applied to um, confirmation, and then so people say, right. well, they're not going to come to catechesis if you confirm them, uh, baptize uh, They're baptized. You confirm them. They receive the yeah. supper, and then you do more instruction. Mm-hmm. And really, it's just projection because they're the you know, right. They're not going to come to Bible class. You know these adults <laughs> exactly, and exactly. So yes, of course the children are not going to come to catechesis because they're not going to. They don't come to class. Right. So why should they come to? You know, right? A little bit. Of and it is. Though. It's
0: the sense of as long as they do what I do, mm. everything's good. Everything's status quo. Yeah, that's another story too. But the question I ask is, but have they made a good confession and do they actually believe this? Mm-hmm. Not yeah. do they understand it? Not do they know? But rather do they believe? Right.
1: Because knowledge and the will, um, those two things get hung up together, right?
0: Yeah. According to Romans seven. Hmm. <laughs> There's a conflict of interest going on inside of us. Yep. So, Erasmus wins the argument, is, is essentially what we just spent about 20 minutes to talk about. <laughs> well, and we gave a practical example from our own context. so. Exactly. Yep. So, these are the basic issues then that run, as Oberon points out, not only through the Reformation, but into modern intellectual history as a whole, thus secular humanism, not just isolated to the church. Mm. Erasmian, quote-unquote, skepticism, (laughs) as liberal and liberating as it appeared to be, would, as Luther anticipated, lead believers astray in one of two ways. Here we go. On the one hand, the scriptures would be elevated to, quote-unquote, holy scriptures and locked away with seven papal seals that could be broken only by the, quote-unquote, holy church. With that, the book on which the church was founded would become a church book, shrouded in mystery, deriving its authority and power from the pope, as the Roman theologian Sylvester Arius, there we go, Prearius mm-hmm. summarized the claims of the Curia as early as 1518, seven years before Luther's dispute with Erasmus. Hmm. It, in classical terms, no one can read the Scriptures apart from the Church, right? Which is a good thing when you understand what it really means in in when Augustine and Saint Ambrose said it, and it's really negative when you understand what um, Sylvester means.
1: Yeah. It's true that the scriptures um, – that we're trained to to interpret the right. scriptures as pastors, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly, but hopefully the pope the papacy had that too, to some degree, right? They were university trained. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But that's – but they didn't mean that the scriptures, um, you know, are best. They meant
0: whatever the pope says is right. how you interpret scripture.
1: Right. And as we've talked about, Period. using the scriptures to justify their own presuppositions or right. objectives, right?
0: Right. Well, in – in a modern context, and I know I'm going to turn the flame up to ten on this one, but ride it out with me. Um, we not only turn the we don't really turn the Bible into a church book anymore. We turn the Lutheran Confessions into a church book. Mm. in in a very In my opinion, in a very similar way that late medieval theologians did, because they could not interpret Scripture unless Bonaventure or the Lombard, in particular, in the sentences says so. Right. What the Lombard says goes. Well, what if I disagree with the Lombard? Then you're wrong. Yeah. Likewise, in the present tense. If you use the Lutheran confessions as a quote-unquote uh, church book and say, well, you can't interpret scripture unless the Lutheran confessions say that's the way to be interpreted, what ends up happening in my experience is we actually use the Lutheran confessions to kind of screw Bible passages into confessional texts that don't apply to that particular passage of scripture. That's probably hard to
1: get get your head around as a listener. I we have the, the old Latin expressions, right? The the Norman Normans and the Norman mm-hmm. Normata. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I'll give you a practical example because this has come up and it's been years since this came up, but I preached a, a sermon on election mm. about the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite mother, and brought in the election. And afterwards, the pastor came up and said, why did you deny original sin in that sermon? Mm. And I said, what do you mean? How did I deny original sin? I obviously didn't because Jesus essentially says... Your, your daughter's healed, she has faith, mm, yeah. there's a confession, um, she recognizes Jesus as other than all these doctors and so forth. Right. But it was, well, you didn't mention original sin before you went to election, and therefore you must deny original sin by implication. Your silence <laughs> means you deny original sin versus what I'm saying is, but that's not what the text lends itself to. Yeah. This isn't a go and sin no more kind of text. hmm This is a go in peace because your daughter is healed on account of your faith. And it's the idea of, well, this pastor is saying, no, this text should be about original sin, not about election. Oh, I see. And I'm saying, well, no, you can't just corkscrew a text into original sin because that's your personal hobby horse Mm. or because you think that that's not what I'm saying.
1: Or that that, uh, the confessions provide this theological framework for every sermon right right you have exactly to give the whole train you have to unload all the way from right i mean justification of course um mm-hmm. mm, forgiveness of sins probably every sermon right <laughs> hopefully boy. yeah um but as we've discussed before i mean the confession of sin sometimes is explicit other times mm-hmm. it's implicit it's it's there right. sins being forgiven And then, as you call it, the backspin, you know, is that, well, then I must have sin. What is the sin that's getting in the way of me being, you know,
0: believing and being forgiven? Right. And so, I think that's the danger, You like you pointed out with catechesis and confirmation. Mm. Over the course of hundreds of years... Other commentaries, other voices dominate the conversation and then another generation comes along and puts their voice on top of it or their influences on top of that. And it builds this kind of detritus almost, this flotsam and jetsam that washes up on a particular area like confirmation or the Bible or Lutheran confessions. Mm. And we stop thinking critically and we stop asking, well, what was the original intent? Right, and so even Luther is attacked for disagreeing with the Lombard in the sentences.
1: Well, it's not, and this happens sometimes even with the Catechism, right? Mm-hmm. The small Catechism. Oh, for sure. That yeah. it, it can rightly diagnose when we go astray of understanding mm-hmm. the Scriptures properly, right? And we've talked about that, right. I think, especially with the Third Article of the Creed. You know, in, in regards to the will and the ability of one to believe, right. Right. Um, so there, it's helpful. It, it actually is like, oh, maybe you've gotten off the path here as far as what the, the Bible teaches. Right. Um, but on the flip side, you could actually use the confessions and, like you said, you know, screw down on any text and yeah. kind of overrule the, the the clear meaning of the text with this right, right. You know, confessional document. Uh, mm. where, so when I said those Latin phrases, the point was that uh, the Scripture is our sole rule and norm right for faith mm-hmm. and life right exactly the confessions only
0: teach what the scriptures say but right. they don't tell the scriptures what to say right and that's a key point that is probably the point is they explain what they say but they don't tell us what they say mm-hmm. they don't they, they must say this yeah exactly yeah. and so that's really the point that the worry or you know these are the two the two ditches so to speak right is that one we fall into the one ditch and say well only the church can interpret this and here's a book
1: or the church's documents yeah so in the case of rome it was uh, it, what, what they call that they call that canon law right mm-hmm. yeah yeah and so the canon canon law tells you how to read the bible and how, right. how you and must read the bible even
0: and again there's a underlying assumption that We have the freedom to do it, but we have to have a set of controls, set up, you know, Mm -hmm. a set up, a set of controls to make sure that this doesn't get out of hand. Yeah. We we don't want to
1: let the Bible completely lose here.
0: Right. And yet on the the other hand, in a Bible study, the first thing a pastor will ask is, what do you think this means? Mm. (laughs) And so we're running kind of almost counter to each other sometimes. Yeah, right. We ask the one question, what do you think this text means? And then counter it with, well, according to the large catechism, you're wrong. And it's it may be the case that yeah you're not interpreting it correctly, but then don't ask the question of a person's will mm, to interpret scripture okay. correctly yeah. because you don't have a free will in regard to in relation to God's word. Yeah, rather um, the the proper methodology
1: would be mm-hmm. anywhere possible. Um, we read the text, and then like like I'm studying mm-hmm. uh, with the religion class in the morning, and we're studying mm-hmm. Genesis one. Well, the right, right way to read Genesis one can come to you if you take the time to read say John chapter 1. <laughs> Correct. Exactly. <laughs> right? That hermeneutical key. And let the scriptures interpret the scriptures don't. You right. don't need
0: you don't need to bring in the Lutheran confessions every time um, to try to prove a point. Right. Well, and the beauty of being Lutheran is we have law and gospel. Mm. So we can ask the question on the on the very and I don't mean this in a, a derogatory way but mm. on the simplest level possible we have a very simple question. Is this the law or is this the gospel? Yeah. You don't have to be Imminently literate in the doctrines and dogmas of your church to be able to interpret scripture correctly all you need to know is what is the god's word of law and what is god's word of gospel is right. this law or gospel
1: to this day though rome will reject um, law gospel as a paradigm exactly. for reading the scriptures they say yes. they they actually have the criticism that we might have of their canon law they say you're imposing yeah. that upon the scriptures
0: right yeah good point fair point hmm. So that's the worry, that's Erasmus's worry, it's Sylvester Priarius' worry, and yet, here we go. The Bible could no longer be read with a critical eye on Pope or Church, since its message would then be limited to proofs for the authority of the papacy, (laughs) to passages which, according to the claims of the Curia, might properly be interpreted only by and from the vantage point of the Pope who's this about yeah. the pope
1: so if it if it requires the authority of the pope um, right. to and, and the power of the pope in order to properly understand then by right. by logic that means the pope cannot be right. criticized by that same text
0: exactly ex- exactly <laughs>
1: yeah so all those statements about the antichrist can't possibly apply to the to the medieval papacy because right it, Medieval papacy has got the sole authority to interpret those parts. (laughs) It's a
0: pretty nice system, you know? It is a nice syllogism. It's tight. So the other consequence too, Obermann continues, would Mm. result in a sealed book. But this time, final judgment would be left not to the Pope, but to biblical scholars. The ivory tower. The ivory tower. Today, that would mean the systematic theologians above all, who like the quote-unquote sophists, the scholastic theologians... So complicate the scriptures that the uninitiated Christian can no longer find any solid ground in which to root his faith. Hmm. So, when was this written? This was Alberman. Um, yeah, early eighties, right?
1: Yeah, and at least in my experience, seminary, um, the systematics department were kind of the uh, bastard stepchild of the seminary at that point. And there were right. It had been it had been reduced from I think five faculty members down to
0: three, although I think they hmm. did replace one of those, so they ended mm-hmm. up getting a fourth back. Well, actually, my advisor, um, Steve Paulson, who's a systematic theologian, mm-hmm. always liked to joke, systematic theologians come up with the answer and then go read the Bible to find the question. <laughs> uh, which is... Yeah, weird. exactly. Yeah. But, but regardless
1: of that, I mean, there, the... There was a shift, I would say, probably 80s, especially 90s, towards a more practical church, right? Mm-hmm. Where there's too much head knowledge. Well, you literally had professors who taught practical theology. It, well, it was a whole discipline from mm-hmm. – even from the medieval period where you had the fourfold yeah. um, approach to scripture. You also had fourfold disciplines, right? So, you yeah, have practical, exegetical, that's interpretation, systematic. That's this whole construction of mm-hmm. a theological framework, I guess. Mm-hmm. What's the fourth one?
0: Mm. Analogical.
1: No, oh, it would have been like a... Pre- no, typological. A practical was preaching. We have had this conversation I'm forgetting something Oh, histor- history. History is the other one. Yeah. So trying to do theology only from the perspective of history primarily, and then only mm-hmm. from this construction of theology, systematic kind of approach, Correct. or only right, from a right. practical approach, which mm-hmm. is kind of... Uh, you want to talk about forcing something upon the use of Scripture, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that fourfold approach, departmental approach... Is right. one of those forcible because, like preaching, is it only practical? Of course not, mm-hmm. right? Right. There's historic context. There's often it's
0: rarely practical. <laughs> in, <office. laughs> in my experience, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, well, there's a lot that. of sermons are rarely practical, <laughs> it's, 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 <laughs> or try to be so practical that they become this kind of, I don't know, again, perfect this perfect this platonic ideal of the Christian life. It's so
1: ideas in search of a meaning. There we go. That's to an the application. Best way say it.
0: Yeah, application exactly. Yeah. The Holy Ghost is not a skeptic, says Luther. He's, he does not lead us into the semi-obscurity of conflicting views on basic questions. That, true to the spirit of scholarly detachment, should be left unanswered. There is, after all, one fundamental truth in the Bible about which there can be no arguing, because it can it has been revealed. God himself became a man, suffered, and will rule for all eternity. The message is unequivocal. It is the reader who equivocates, who cannot approach the text objectively and without preconceived ideas. Hmm. He is man in conflict who does not want to accept God's judgment over him. Yeah, look at There that. you go. So the Holy Spirit is a skeptic. Meaning, um,
1: it's not like you read the Bible and it's like a lot of other holy texts, right? Where they're mm-hmm. they're kind of all over the map, and it's really hard to kind of nail down. Well, what, what like say, what's the nature of God in the Quran, in, in particular? Correct. Is he is he merciful? Right. Is he just? Is he is he vindictive? Is he gracious? Is he kind? And it's basically everything, right? He has mm-hmm. however many names. I can't remember many names, and they're often contradictory. And it's not—it's not paradoxical in our sense, in a Lutheran sense. Um, alien versus, you know, right. revealed will—that kind of thing. But
0: like you point out, though, there are certainly plenty of Romans who would question that statement and say, "Yeah, you're forcing that upon the text." Mm,
1: yeah. Again. Yeah. So. Mm, <sighs> The Holy Spirit is not a skeptic. So he's Luther's thinking of
0: the classical definition of skeptic, right? Well, and he's also referring to Erasmus's way of doing exegesis, which is theology by inference. I talked about in the last episode. He'll go through a topic and then just find every passage in the Bible that applies to that topic. And so for free will, he'll make a list of texts that he thinks support free will versus texts he thinks denies free will. And whichever list is longer... By inference, that means we have free will. I think we talked about this because re- the nature of will
1: in regards to election, or predestination. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, you know,
0: in, in one sense, that question, you know, is is the wrong question. It is the wrong question because at root to Obermann's point, what Erasmus is attempting to do is escape God's judgment. Mm-hmm. That's what it comes down to at the end of the day. He's trying to find proof of his salvation outside of exactly. the, the
1: declared word of God.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. This is why moralistic therapeutic deism is so popular mm-hmm. still. It's why theodicy is so popular, right? make That we make God defend his decisions to us. God than, in the dock, as Lewis said. Yeah, God in the dock. And so rather than accept that God's judgment falls on Jesus, we turn away from the cross. And now we are left with, oh, I've got a lot of this judgment weighing on, on me now. Right. I'm not doing the Ten Commandments. I'm not obeying them perfectly. I don't cherish and adore them as I should. Um, I don't worship the way I should. I don't live the way I should. Again, a lot of shoulds. <laughs> Shoulda, woulda, couldas.
1: It seems all the apostles have at their heart and center of their, of, of their confession um, who Christ is and what he's done for us, right? Exactly.
0: Everything's died, mm-hmm. Not, hey, what are you doing today? Be perfect. Yeah. That, I mean, that, And that ends up being
1: then the ultimate stumbling block. Is God yes. became man, and not only right. did he become man, but he suffered and died for you and rose. Right. And right. that's what you've got to deal with, you know, And there's no
0: salvation outside of him. Outside of that name, yeah. Yeah. And that, is, at root, that is the problem, is that we look at it and go, it's too specific. Mm-hmm. Well, it's too objective. It's, that's the other right. aspect of it. It's not. Very much so. Uh, yeah, it's outside
1: of us, out of our control. Mm-hmm. Where we want to be the subject, and, and there yeah. he is the subject.
0: <laughs> right. Where's our choice? Hmm. If we have, and to Erasmus's point, if we have no choice, then how could God possibly damn certain people?
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: And that's, and that's not just Erasmus's question. You go back and read the medieval debates, that goes on a lot amongst the medieval scholastics. Yeah. You go even to, um, again, Gregory of Rimini, uh, the Lombard, who else? Dun Scotus, Thomas Aquinas even. Mm-hmm. They're wrestling with this whole matter of election. Yeah. And the question of free will. And like I, I refer to Gregory of Rimini, I think it was, who said, God allows us the illusion of free will, but we really don't have any free will because he's the prime mover. Mm. He's the first cause.
1: Well, it's just like the go- lawyer says, you know, what must I do to be saved? I mean, that's right. kind of the, that is the, the natural question of, of right. our hearts. That's what we want right. to know. Right. And so that's, so it's obvious. I mean, I guess it's apparent that we would fall back into that question repeatedly
0: (laughs) as we get disconnected from Christ and his cross. But as Luther says, to quote the text that Orman refers to, Mm -hmm. remove Christ from the scriptures and there's nothing left. (laughs) There's no point. There's no point. So Erasmus goes in to find himself. Luther goes in to find Jesus. And we know this from his experience in the monastery. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's not B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. That would be Erasmus's way of reading the scripture, mm-hmm. which again is why he won the war. Because I don't know how many times I hear old timers say that. I don't know if it was popular at one time. Yeah, but yeah it must have been. And they just latched onto it. Yeah. Can't give it up. Nope. And to which I, I respond, you know this is all history, right? Yeah. <laughs> that this is, again, you're, you're not reading it in relation to Christ but rather you're reading it in relation to yourself. Right. Hmm. And then we kind of cast that heroic journey, that platonic idea of the hero's journey into the text of the Bible and ask, well, what does this mean to me? Yeah. How does this apply to my life? How is this helpful? Right. Yeah. And whatever is not helpful, we just explain away yeah like your selective use of leviticus earlier right exactly exactly it's all about jesus mm, what about this thing about the kidneys yeah <laughs> or, i don't like this bit about
1: you know eating the blood goat's so. blood
0: mixed with milk Yeah,
1: exactly right because i'm not a fan of this blood bread or blood sausage right. or whatever uh, it is well yeah, yeah we'll push that aside
0: poly cotton blends <laughs> <laughs> that's right uh i don't like crawfish yeah i condemn thee, crawfish So through Christ, God and his design were rendered accessible to everyone, even though there may be passages, statements, and concepts that are obscure to us and for which we need scholars. Mm -hmm. That's why you, as I say to my people often, that's why you pay me. Yeah, the big bucks. (laughs) The big bucks. But that does not apply to more than isolated problems, Mm -hmm. exactly.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Personal aside, this is why when you teach Bible study, don't keep using Hebrew or Greek or Latin or German words all the time. 1 your people don't understand what you're talking about 2 it i don't think it's helpful as a teaching device all the time i think it's like garlic yeah it's a seasoning but don't you know it's like when i was 5 i used to love garlic bread and so i would make toast by myself and i put butter on it and then i put so much garlic on top of the toast that it was just white that it, garlic it looked, salt yeah it was garlic salt right and and i would eat it i loved it i loved the taste of garlic and yet and I would go back in the house and that's all you could smell all day long was just me. Yeah, it comes out of your pores. The garlic. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and I used to get scolded then by my parents for using so much garlic. Hmm. Well, it's good and for you though. Maybe not all the salt, but at least the garlic was. <laughs> <laughs> but the point being then that um, you use it as a seasoning, you use the languages as a seasoning as well. Or as my one pastor who mentored me said, there's silver bullets that you use to kill werewolves yeah when someone comes in and tries to take over the Bible study or comes into your church and declares you not to be a Christian or you're not a legitimate pastor or any of these things, right. you know, they show up with a strongest concordance, for example, and go, well, this word means this. Yeah. well, that's great, but you don't actually speak Hebrew
1: or Greek. Not every not every word translated into English uh, has mm-hmm. been obfuscated or made obscure, right? Oh, right. Some exactly. words we talked about to uh, tellsty, but um other words, the English meaning follows the common Greek meaning, and it, right, it's not, exactly. it's, not, uh, it's right. not, strange. Sometimes you, I think you can use it in a way of seizing, not to correct an error in translation, but to mm-hmm. kind of expand your understanding of
0: maybe. the Yeah, word that's there. much better way of saying it. Uh, yeah, to really flesh out the text, literally mm-hmm. flesh out the. Text. Yeah,
1: you're not, you're not disagreeing with the translation. The translation's fine. It, you're just right. Really,
0: you're. At, well, you're asking, how does this point to Christ?
1: Yeah, you're showing how this, how this, <clears throat> this, the you know particular word maybe can broaden your um you can see how mm-hmm. rich the text
0: is right and all of what we're talking about we actually owe to erasmus too though mm, because right. it was the humanists who said back to the source yeah you got to learn the original languages again we wouldn't have a luther without the humanists we wouldn't because, have critical editions which we talked about right right where where they
1: where they <laughs> looked at all the manuscripts all the fragments of manuscripts compared them and and tried right. to then evaluate what well, what's the most likely um original
0: text you know based off of all the copies we have.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And to give you an idea, and I don't know if we talked about it on this podcast before, but um, it took, Luther edited his Old Testament translation for 12 years. Mm. So he was <laughs> he doing was, that work himself. Well, he would edit, but he what he'd do is he translated it, then he gave it to Melanchthon, who was the real scholar, and then Melanchthon would make corrections, and then give it back to Luther, and then Luther would work with Melanchthon's corrections or suggestions yeah. to clean it up. But altogether, it took him 12 years before he finally said, okay, I can let this go in yeah. the Old Testament. Well, maybe the New Testament a, was faster, but...
1: At some point, you just have to say, uh, it's right. done. Right, yeah, let it you go. Got to like, turn in the manuscript. It go. <laughs> it's gotta, got deadlines here.
0: But really, with Luther, again, because of the printing press, but with Luther, you have really the first phenomenon of multiple editions. Mm. Because he published it, the, the, the Greek and, and Hebrew in german and then just kept editing and republishing and editing and republishing for 12 years constantly updating the translation
1: you have some of that even with his native native works too right you're right, his german yeah. language works where you have multiple yeah. editions revisions
0: you know, exactly in his own language. so in a sense yeah it is important that you have someone who understands the languages who grasps context who can say hey how does this get in the way of jesus being delivered for you yeah that's law mm-hmm. well here's jesus being delivered for you that's gospel mm-hmm. And then teach your congregation, this is all about baptism, or this is about the sacrament, or this is about Christ, not about you, mm-hmm. to flesh out topics like free will versus the bondage of the will, election versus double predestination, justification, sanctification, you know, all of these things that are inherent to the scripture, mm-hmm. but has the, the lay person been educated in such a way that they are a part of that conversation? Right. And we, we don't discount...
1: Um, you know the interpretation or the the history of interpretation of a text, either, mm-hmm. right? Um, just because, say, the papacy in the medieval period used that as justification for all sorts of like we're in sure. charge, you know, as yeah. a kind of a power game. But right. uh, that doesn't mean that that the ancients or the church fathers, for example, and their their understanding of a text, whichever church fathers you want to talk about, sure. uh, was necessarily wrong. They they we would consider that wisdom when mm-hmm. when it agrees with scripture, right? Right, yeah, so, so you could say, well, just uh, go back
0: and read Chrysostom, yeah, or Gregory, Chrysostom. Or, yeah, or Gregory, yeah, or read like the Eastern Fathers mm-hmm. or Cyprian or Zeus, even or Augustine, son, or, right, we've talked,
1: yeah, even Augustine, yep, exactly. that was Luther with Heidelberg, right. He says, you know, was… Yeah. <laughs> the the point here of these disputations is to see whether um uh, Augustine agreed with Saint Paul. That, that's, right. that was the point. It's not that Augustine was necessarily wrong, but let's
0: listen to St. Paul and let's listen to Augustine right. and see. And oh, the scandal that created when he said, yeah, this is where he disagrees with St. Paul. Mm, right. But tradition, tradition, Right. Augustine. Tradition can err, just like councils can, can. Just like councils can, just like popes. Mm-hmm. Go read treatises on the power and primacy of the pope, for example. And by the way, in case uh,
1: you don't think we're self-critical enough, Luther can err too.
0: Yeah, there you go. And often does, especially later in life. Oh Mm. my goodness, does he err. Go read against Hans Vorst.
2: Mm. Oof. Oh, that's used as like
0: a confessional document. Oops. Ugh. Mm. Anywho, but that does not apply. Now, again, for which we need scholars, but that does not apply to more than isolated problems. The gospel is plain and must therefore be taught and preached simply and without skepticism. Yeah. The obscure passages don't render the
1: clear passages of scripture obsolete, for example. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, and this is a key point. The gospel is plain, yes, but our heart and our mind are wired for the law. Mm-hmm. We are by nature legalists. What must We're I lawyers do? by nature. Yeah. Right. Versus the gospel, which is alien to us and therefore has to be revealed to us from outside of us, you said, objectively. Yeah. It's amazing how often that, that diagnostic comes about.
1: Um, I was reading a faith statement for a magazine. Somebody said, well, who publishes this? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Let's go look it up. It's, it's just a printing house. but. But their faith statement is: We give, we give, we give. We're at the mm-hmm. beginning of every, like we give thanks, we give praise. Um, and and right. the person we, we, I we, talking, all the way home, yeah, the person I was talking to said, "Hmm, have you thought about our faith statement?" I believe in God, the Father, who Maker of heaven and earth. He gives. Right. My, right. I believe in Jesus Christ, who was born, suffered, died for yeah. me. <laughs> right. I believe in the Holy Spirit, who does all these things for me. It's it's God gives and mm-hmm. we receive. Uh, our faith statement is very different
0: well that's an interesting thing to your point especially in in the modern context is whenever we try to improve upon like the ancient creeds to your point mm-hmm. it it always ends up magnifying us yeah, at the expense right. of sublimating the deity mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right and it's like yeah of course we we're of course we're all about the creed and, and the trinity and stuff like that we just want to start every statement about make it about us uh, yeah. what we believe what we do what we confess mm. we 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 three little pig uh, th- three little pigs theology yeah there you go yeah. So it would be totally wrong to declare Erasmus defeated by this argument. He <laughs> was certainly he has certainly never been driven from the field up to the present day. He was, after all, not interested in skepticism as such, but in an attitude that, with its academic reticence and the struggle for objectivity, would serve peace in the church and the world.
2: Hmm.
0: Which, to Erasmus's Christian philosophy is kind of the point of his whole program, which is, again, it's a moral movement. He's a moral scholar. Mm. And therefore, what's his ultimate goal? Well, it's to bring peace. Yeah, but peace with uncertainty. Yeah, again, a healthy skepticism towards authority. For example, he wasn't a big fan of the papacy Mm -hmm. and certainly was critical of his fellow scholars, especially on the faculties of different universities. Right. And yet at root, he still believed, again, in the inherent potential for human goodness it just needed guidance and right. who better to do that than a guy like erasmus
1: yeah i mean uncertainty in the papacy i think we can get on board with um, <laughs> yeah. but uncertainty with the script, text of the scripture especially as as luther said with the plain gospel you know which yeah correct which must be preached simply and without skepticism it jesus died for you and he gives you that salvation you know mm-hmm. here in this way <laughs> through these means right there it's not it's not confusing it's right. not abstract, but then, of course, yeah, well, this body, this this bread represents the body. We have to make right. it abstract or
0: confusing um, rather than simply take the, the scriptures at, at their word. Right. Well, and as we were just saying, it's really just to get around God's judgment of us. Hmm. We don't like the objective clarity, the pointedness of God's judgment, hmm. which is the greatest irony of all because God's judgment falls on Jesus, not us. And yet that makes us super uncomfortable that we don't get to be responsible for our own judgment. What is intended to be wonderful good news ends up up being so freeing that it makes us uncomfortable. Right, right. (laughs) So, Obermann continues, it is unquestionably easier to live with Erasmus than with Luther. Hmm. Not so much with Erasmus the man, who was vain, oversensitive to criticism and contradiction, but with his ideas, which have appealed to the cultural elite throughout the centuries. There you go. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to imagine Erasmus in social media. Oh how my that goodness. Would oh, that play out. Oversensitive to criticism. <laughs> right. I mean, Luther obviously would be banned from Facebook and probably run out of the synod for yeah. what he would write or post on social media. Yeah, um, he, he would be the... Like Louis C.K. of theologians, right? Yeah, it just, it it wouldn't fly. Just,
1: no, (laughs) it's too much, too much. too much, that's awkward. Yeah, yeah.
0: Versus (laughs) Erasmus, who, yeah, on the surface would be super appealing to people, and yet, as soon as he gets his nose flicked with criticism, because he's vain, he's oversensitive to criticism, he doesn't like being contradicted, he writes an uh, 800-page response to Luther. A blog. Line by line. Yeah, exactly. He writes in a blog. Can you imagine 800 blogs responding to Luther's criticism of Just you? Just one after another. Part one, part two, part three, part four. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Continuing where we left off in the last. Continuing yesterday from yesterday, here's the next sentence that I would like to reply to. I can imagine. And yeah, <laughs> he, he, if, you, if you even look at Erasmus' response, he'll take a sentence written by Luther and spend five pages responding to one sentence. And even longer sometimes. Yeah. And you
1: wonder how long Luther spent composing that one sentence.
0: Not very long, actually. Mm. Again, three months to complete the whole response. Yeah. And that's three months, not like every day working on it. That's three months of, I think I've got some time this afternoon. I can work on this some more. Yeah. It's not that he's not um, careful with his words.
1: I think he was. Um, but, oh, very much so. But he's not not in the way of a systematic theologian where like...
0: Well, like we said, he's so comfortable with the argument. Oh, I see. Which is, I think, what shocked Erasmus is how comfortable Luther was with this argument that he could go in so many different directions and go, yeah, all of scripture actually deals with this. <laughs> yeah, you wonder, where was he dealing with that? I mean, it's not just a mental exercise.
1: It, it's not been internal. He deals with
0: it in his Ecclesiastes lectures, mm-hmm. which were right before this. He deals with it in his Genesis lectures, the first set of Genesis lectures. So this has happened, been happening in the classroom. He's been Isaiah working lectures, through these arguments. Absolutely, right. Yeah. And in his sermons and I think in the confessional, hmm. hearing confessions and, and being pastoral and talking with his students, his advisees, yeah. and working with them, that I think it's actually a constant conversation he's having, both, quote-unquote, practically in the confessional and with his students, uh, academically from the, the lectern, mm-hmm. and ecclesiastically in church and in his writings, his treatises.
1: Whereas Erasmus, there's... I, I don't Purely forget, academic. Yeah, it's not been that interactive with... What we'd say the real world.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Erasmus has a theology of the mind, I would say. Mm. Or as Overman points out that, yeah, theologically there's lots of people who can hang their hat on Erasmus. Mm. But if they were to meet him in person, it would certainly color their reading of his theology. Yeah,
1: he's way on the one end of the spectrum here.
0: Versus when you read Luther, it automatically colors your reading of Luther because he's so Luther. Mm. Right? He's so raven in all of his, yeah, that's his right. treatises. That's right. Whatever you need to know about Luther is there for you. To, Luther doesn't filter himself. No, he doesn't he'll, self-censor. He'll tell you
1: the the that about that morning's bell movement.
0: So. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and then somehow tied into an analogy for something from Scripture, <laughs> as he often does. But nonetheless, I think that's the point is that... When, when Luther responds to Erasmus, he's, he, this is his conversation. And if there's anything, going back to what we said earlier, if there's anything that I think Luther could say, no, all of scripture is actually about this doctrine. Yeah. It's election. Like yeah. the, the foundation, as he says, you know, you've picked the topic, the doctrine on which is the hinge of every, it's the hinge. Mm.
1: And you didn't even
0: know it. Yeah. You didn't even know it. You thought this was going to be a polite academic argument, my friend. You've actually hit on the one thing on which everything hangs. Mm. Like the doctrine of justification is essentially cemented by the doctrine of election.
1: Yeah. Because the, because will is um, at at the heart of justification and of original sin, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah. Do we have a choice? Mm. Well, in relation to original sin? No. Well, how about in relation to the cross? No. Mm. So then what is the purpose of the will? Well, Luther calls it a chimera, a myth. Free will after the fall exists in name only. And whenever it tries to do what is within it, it, what happens? It commits a mortal sin. Hmm. And to do what is within you is a very famous Latin phrase from late medieval theology.
2: Be who Vacher you are. In
0: Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: And so by Luther saying that at Heidelberg, if you know, if you try and do what is within you, he's not just like he's literally attacking the entire medieval system of theology with that one statement because all of Roman Catholic piety is founded on that one statement. Do what is within you. Hmm. Which, if you were to update it, would be what? Do your best and God will do the rest. Yeah. Yeah. Or be who you are. So imagine that for over a thousand years, that's kind of your catchphrase. Like, hey, sum up your church for me. Do what is within you. Mm. And then this snot-nosed theologian comes along, this monk from some backwater monastery that no one, you know, from some town in Germany that no one wants to live, and says, yeah, actually, that's a mortal sin. It's kind of a buy at degree college, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. A Vermilion <laughs> Community College on the Iron Range. <laughs> That's
1: right. Yeah. Where the, where the elector is just like, yeah, I want a university. I'm just going to build. Right. Rooms.
0: Yeah. All, all the cool electors have their own universities.
1: <laughs> so and that was the criticism. It? It's,
0: it's, on a, it's on a muddy street. Like they, they don't even have paved roads. What is this? Like University of Phoenix or something, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, those ads you see during like college football games right. or late at night. Yeah. Yeah. But that was the criticism of Wittenberg. They didn't even have paved streets. It's like, how can you have a university in a city that doesn't even, like, it just, it rains and you can't even go out in the streets. Kind of, what kind of a city is that?
1: Yeah. Well, Which, you know, the, uh, the foodie scene was pretty minimal as well. There
0: you go. Right. But yeah. they were famous for their beer and their fish oh. and their prostitutes. Sorry, folks. Oops. It's a fact. So, uh, let's see. Through the centuries, that is one side of Erasmus, the side that corresponds to our present day temper or temperament. But the modern aspect does not constitute the whole. As a rule, the Renaissance is associated with rebirth and energetic new departures. But in his conflict with Luther, Erasmus presented a totally different picture, one of weariness, disappointment, and disillusionment at the end of a long era of seemingly secure values and firm convictions. Hmm. Remember, Erasmus didn't want to do this. Mm-mm. It was really the emperor and the pope and Henry VIII that forced his hand to say, are you in bed with, the re- with these reformers? Are you in bed with this Luther guy? Because I've heard, yeah, he was defending himself, not so, not just against Luther, but right. against, you know, the church. Yeah, go read the Martin Brecht biography if you really want to get deeply into this, because Brecht spends a lot of time with this. That okay. Erasmus has to do this because he's in a corner, hmm. and he tries to, you know, he dodges as long as he can. He doesn't want to get into it because remember, Erasmus does not like conflict, right? And he avoids conflict, at, and that's why his Erasmian skepticism is there because he does not want to make assertions. In fact, this is his whole point is no assertions. Whereas Luther like launches the the debate with, yeah, the Holy Spirit makes assertions and therefore one can't actually be a theologian without assertions. Mm. Like he's just constantly hammering everything Erasmus says and saying, nope, you're wrong. Nope, you're wrong. You can't be a theologian with that that kind of attitude.
1: Yeah, well, think about it uh, with this unfortunate word in English, may, right? M-A-Y, you know, may the Lord bless you and keep you right? Well, mm-hmm. we hear that as not, maybe. yeah, as maybe. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> you know, which is is kind of an uncertain word then. And, right. you know, the ironic benediction is meant to be a certain word, right? The Lord bless you. Right. right. So well, it's
0: even in the catechism that I may be his own and live in him, live under him in righteousness, innocence, and blessings forever. Might, maybe. It's like that word may is in the German context, like you said, pre-modern, it means actually opens up. It opens it up to you. It will like you happen. Literally, yeah, you are free to live under him in righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the present context, postmodern context, may means, eh, you know, maybe so, maybe not. I hope so.
1: Yeah.
0: I hope the Lord blesses you. Good luck with that. But this is a great point going back to what we were saying earlier. That's why you pay a pastor. Mm-hmm. That's why you have a pastor to be able to explain this to you that, oh, no, that's not what this means. mm it's actually a really good word. Or
1: or maybe in his pastoral judgment, he just omits that word and just says, sure.
0: nope, the Lord bless you. The Lord bless you and keep you. That's right. I don't actually say it. No, you don't. I, I never really it. thought about that. I make the assertion. Mm-hmm, you do? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's, it's
1: a stronger expression because of the shift in meaning of, of the English.
0: Yeah. It's a statement of fact. Yeah. A promise. Yeah, I guess that's the best way to explain it. In pre-modern terms, may is a promise. Mm-hmm not a subjunctive it's not an you know right we only
1: hear it as subjunctive now
0: yeah right um so that's the one side of erasmus um doesn't constitute the whole you know luther and erasmus they're in this conflict it's a totally different picture overman says one of weariness disappointment disillusionment long gener you know 10 years almost during a whole era of being secure and being firm and all of a sudden being challenged now and again in a certain sense Uh, erasmus is essentially saying to luther sit down young man and listen to your elders yeah because erasmus has been on the scene for a long time he's he's the old wolf he's the guy that everybody looks to for advice and wisdom everybody trusts erasmus he's popular luther is some again some upstart from some backwater university that no one's ever heard of Hmm. before who is he to challenge the prince of the humanists and then Luther writes his response on De Servo Arbitrio. And everyone is kind of like, it's like those uh, internet memes where you see someone like try something and fail. And then it switches to like a whole group of people going, Oh, and falling over each other in yeah. surprise and shock. Mm-hmm. It was like when people read Luther's response, because Melanchthon had promised it was going to be this polite academic debate. And it was going to kind of reconcile these two groups, the humanists and the reformers. And then people read Luther's response. And it was like, Whoa, Whoa. Whoa. What is this? Yeah. This is not a polite academic debate. Yeah. Yeah. Back down, is, man. <laughs> right. This is this is Luther. I mean, he's violent, man. He's going for, he's cutting heads. Mm. Not playing around. So it was in this confrontation, his confrontation with Luther, his diatribe on the free will, which generations have interpreted as humanism's programmatic repudiation of the Reformation, that the outstanding Bible scholar was more scholastic and medieval than ever before. Mm. His treatise was oriented toward the past. It was extremely conservative in its rejection of public discussion, of unauthorized, untried, and hence unacceptable solutions in biblical interpretations, Hmm. such as the doctrine of the free will. (laughs) Keep it private. Keep it Latin. Keep
1: it academic. Well, this is kind of like um, the joint declaration on the doctrine of justification, right? Where you've got uh, largely Roman and liberal Lutheran scholars together saying... You know what, guys? It's just kind of complicated, and we're kind of tired of this argument. Mm -hmm. So we're going to just kind of get along now. Um, We know that the words kind of mean different things, but we'll deal with that theologians ivory tower whatever Mm -hmm. Um, and then you know but for all intents and purposes you you know Lutherans largely are the ones who gave up everything you Lutherans Mm -hmm. um, you know you really do agree with us as Roman Catholics you just you know you have a uh, slightly different thing
0: we just won't we won't define grace or justification yeah just trust us just trust us and we'll ignore Trent and we'll ignore the Lutheran confessions and I mean Rome did give that up they did give up (laughs) Trent in a way
1: Um, but Vatican II had already done that so that was okay right yeah
0: But nonetheless, it's, yeah, those debates started in the 50s between Luther. the Lutheran and Roman Catholic dialogue started in the 50s. And I think a lot of what that was, was fatigue, for sure, like Oberon points out about Mm -hmm. Erasmus, but also a bunch of guys who have been at it for so long and they're looking down the barrel of their mortality now.
1: Yeah. Well, it's coming
0: right out of the Second World War. Right. It's like, what's my legacy at the end of the 90s -hmm. versus in the 50s and 60s and 70s And you're saying to yourself, I'm great, I'm going full steam, I'm at the peak of my intellectual and physical powers. Yeah. Let's do this. Let's throw it down. Versus again, I I know most of the guys that were involved with in those conversations because I was in that circle, that ecosystem at the time. Mm-hmm. A lot of those guys were in their sixties, yeah, and seventies, and have been at that table a long time. And I think they were just look, they were literally they're looking over their shoulder and saying, "What's my legacy?" what all, do I have to leave to the church all we're saying is let's give peace a chance right and there were certain bishops in the ELCA who just wanted the key to the Vatican uh, washroom hmm yeah you know. let's not go there it's kind of a uncomfortable place it's, right now it's a status thing nobody <laughs> wants to go to the Vatican at the moment no 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 except the guy who's like measuring up the chair because he wants the job <laughs> <laughs> we're like what are you thinking <laughs> right exactly are you sure Oh, that has yeah. gone well for the last two guys. Uh, yeah, no yeah. kidding, huh? Yeah. So that's, yeah, but that's a good analogy or a good point of comparison because the JDDJ, as soon as it was published, was ref- refuted by both sides. Yeah. Roman Catholics and Lutherans went, what are you doing? Mm. This, is ter- this is a dumpster fire. By the con- more conservative elements on both sides. Anyway. Yeah, by both sides. Yeah, mm. and even those who are at the table, like, um, uh, was it Carl Peter and Gerhard Ferdy? I think it was Carl Peter was the Roman Catholic. Mm. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was Carl Peter and then Gerhard Ferdi both objected because of the lack of definition. Wow. in fact, they went together and they co-authored a journal article that repudiated the entire um, JDDJ.
1: We're still getting document. we're still getting articles <laughs> refuting JDDJ. But. Right?
0: Yeah, you know we're Lutherans. We'll catch up eventually mm. <laughs> to what's going on today. But, it, but it's an Erasmian kind of approach. Um, Very much so. Right. Approach. Let's try and find the middle ground. Mm-hmm. Let's try and avoid conflict. Let's have a polite academic debate and come to some sort of middle ground, some high ground, like I said, and then say, all right, good. This is settled for now. And then we'll okay. let the next generation deal yeah. with it when we're yeah. gone. Or at least we're just too tired to keep going. <laughs> right. We're just going to slow down. <laughs> right. Right. It's time to retire, go to uh, our lake house. Unlike Luther, Erasmus was, however, modern in that he placed his hopes in a long future. Mm. He believed there was enough time for a re-education of the elite to produce a gradual ethical change. There it is. The medieval, quote, mirrors for princes, the political textbooks of that time, would have to be rewritten to suit governmental and cultural leaders of a bourgeois society. Hmm. Erasmus pinned his hopes on the progress of time and the educated man again both humanist values yeah that's a high anthropology things are going to get yeah. better <laughs> the best defender of the loftiest interests whose innate ineradicable striving for self-actualization is purified by God and then finds consummation in true piety that's that re- that in words. a nutshell is Erasmus's entire program mm-hmm. like obermann is perfectly summed up at least for Erasmus, that's humanism in a nutshell. That's Erasmus' humanism.
1: Yeah, we're a little messed up, but we're getting better and God's going to make it right. Right.
0: Education will solve our problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just need to rewrite the textbooks. And then once our leaders and our academics get on the same page, we can educate the laity and we can move into a brighter, better future. Yeah. It's almost…
1: Like um, like, self-actualization. It's almost like Zionism or really just… Um... When you say utopianism, in a way, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. We can get there. We just got to try.
0: Right, right. It's there. It's out there just waiting for us. It's actually already in us even, right? There is that too, right? It's it's self, we're self-actualizing what is already inherent within us. It's there. We just have to kind of get all the cruft yeah. out of the way. Name it yeah. and claim it, baby. Yeah. So for from Erasmus's perspective, Luther was in, Luther was impatience personified. <laughs> <laughs> A monk who would listen to no one, who had not learned from history, and threatened the cause of piety and education by casting doubt on man's moral disposition and perfectibility. Hmm. A thing done well cannot be done quickly, as the saying goes. Yeah. Yeah, Luther is more slash and burn, right? He really is.
1: Death resurrection, we might say. Um, I was gonna say, when I look into the well of history, I do often see myself <laughs> It's, it's not quite anarchy because the scripture is a uh, is sole rule and norm, right? Right. So it's not without yeah. order, um, right. but it does come off being very chaotic. It, it does look like a kid writing on all the walls. <laughs> <laughs> That's right.
0: He just doesn't care. Right. <laughs> but again, like I referred to, Erasmus really does look at Luther as this kind of snot-nosed upstart. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, who are you? You know, again, age a little bit, get some seasoning, mature, then step up. But if you had a but nose Luther. like Erasmus. Ah, just right? There's yeah. a picture in, in Overman's book, in case you're wondering what he's referring to, uh, by Hans Holbein, the Younger, of Erasmus. And he definitely has the Greek nose, which was very important for art. Mm. The, Greek, the Greek nose was a symbol of wisdom. Oh, I didn't know and that. And learning. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So the Greek nose, super important. The Greek nose. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to type this. <laughs> I'm right. That'll be in the show notes. Yeah. Hopefully I got that right, too. But I'm pretty sure that, yeah, the Greek nose yeah very important either that or he's he's actually from Scotland not from right <laughs> Netherlands
2: <laughs> mm.
0: oh, that's good but uh, yeah you can check out Hans Holbein the Younger has this wonderful painting oh, Yeah, of it. oh yeah, well, I can Greek, actually link no, to shape, meaning, look at the shape meaning yep that. there it is an aesthetic value to your face huh that is yeah you are considered uh, more attractive <clears throat> more knowledgeable more wiser so forth and so on if you have the Greek nose hmm. Okay. Which is ironic because today we actually get nose jobs to get rid of that. Oh, Um, that's true. Yeah. Because you don't want to be that wise maybe. Yeah. Straighten that out. Maybe kind of a little bit uptick on the, on the bridge, on the tip of the nose. Well, there's all sorts of kind of like pious myths about size of hands and feet. Yeah. 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 What is that called? The Fibonacci Code? Fibonacci sequence, right. yeah. Fibonacci sequence, right? That, that's why we can recognize when people get plastic surgery. There's something wrong because their face isn't. It's it's uh, the uh,
1: the perfect spiral. Think of like a the conch shell or yeah um, the the yeah or, or the the spiral of a of a fern, right? As the ferns right. expanding. So it's, what yeah. is the sequence? One, three, five, yeah, seven. Yeah, something, something it's, something. it's
0: just the it's the. Um, uh, What's perf- the tool song that's based on the Fibonacci sequence? Dun, dun, dun,
1: dun. All around, I see. Dun, dun, dun. I got some of the lyrics in my head. Yeah, so do I. No, I can't remember mm, off the top of I mean, my head. Kind of loosely, but but still, right. yeah, it has that because the meter goes one, and then it goes three, and then it goes five. It it's expanding three, five, two, two, three, two. or is it two? No, it's two. one, two. Ah, they keep doubling. That's right. Three, so one. Is you it, lateralis? Is it, it is of lateralis? It is off a lateral. It is lateralis. Yep. It is lateralis. Okay, so it's one, two, three plus four would be seven that's five it would be 12 so yeah, yeah. that's yeah. the sequence but
0: yeah. I'll I'll put a link in All there right. you go that's but yeah Fibonacci brother. sequence but anyways point being yeah we, we look for patterns humans are wired to look for patterns mm-hmm. and the Fibonacci sequence just keeps popping up in everything actually you see it in Greek that's architecture a, even but they do to, constantly yeah to um, appreciated that and so yeah when someone does something to their face it throws off the alignment of their face and our brain recognizes it even if our eyes don't mm, so right. to speak
2: yeah
0: Luther, Obermann continues, had no time to wait. There could be no thought of either a long-term educational policy or a step-by-step subjugation of peace-imperiling barbarism. Essentially, what Erasmus is saying is, Luther, you're unleashing these savages on the world with Bibles, and they're, they're doing it without any adult supervision whatsoever. Yeah. Right? It's like when I show up at the academy with my kids for jujitsu and everybody knows the Rileys are there. Hmm because the savages hit that door and they're just on fire hmm. like you can hear them you can see them they're everywhere
1: yeah so I mean that's the thing with like plans and um, you know objectives and mm-hmm. long term visions is that they're not entirely wrong I suppose but but when it comes to uh, false teaching in particular mm-hmm. which is what Luther is getting mm-hmm. at uh, right. he's got no time to wait it's nope. no this is I'm not playing the long game on this and, right and uh we're just
0: I'm well, we're just gonna to the it. point we talked about in the last episode. He didn't want to write a response to Erasmus. Mm-mm. It was Katie who basically pressured him in, into it to get people off her back. And so his response is sharp because he's also annoyed that he has to write this. Yeah, let's so just, he's uh,
1: already angry. This <laughs> is like finish him, right? Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly.
0: Let's, yeah, we're not we're gonna we're not gonna start like at level one and work our way to the top of the tower. We're just gonna go straight to the top of the tower and just go for the finishing move. We're gonna rip his spine right out. <laughs> That's right. Page one, rips his spine out. Whoa, where do we go from here? No, it's just more of that. It's just hundreds of pages of me just attacking. Yeah, Yeah, it's definitely not something that our postmodern sensibilities. I think maybe that's why so many people are have such trouble with it. Because I've talked with other people, mm-hmm. yeah. both Lutheran and non-Lutheran, who have tried to read it, who have said, he seems really mean.
1: Yeah. No, He's very negative. Yeah.
0: And it's like, no, he's not being negative or mean. He's being actually very positive about Christ and very negative about people. Whereas Erasmus is very positive about people, theoretically. Yeah. I mean, it is devastating
1: for the will, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly.
0: You're, again, you're, you're destroying the one thing about us that we think is literally the most valuable aspect of us, hmm. which is our choice, our hmm. free will.
2: Yeah.
0: And Luther's like, yeah, in relation to God, you have no choice. Zero choice. And you're like, dude, that's like the best I have to offer to God. And you're saying it's like worthless. Yeah. He's like, it's not worthless. It's a mortal sin.
1: (laughs) It's worthy of uh, death, damnation, right?
0: Right. Which is why when I ask people, what does God's wrath feel like, which comes out of the bondage of the will, what does God's wrath feel like? And everybody answers, blah, blah, blah. And I go, no, actually it feels like free will. Yeah. Because according to Romans They they usually say
1: what? Like pain, suffering pain um, suffering
0: um, damnation in the abstract sense mm. yeah but pr- materially speaking yeah suffering affliction pain whereas and i'm in, like no
1: no it's that god gave them over to their sinful to desires. desires
0: yeah exactly mm-hmm. what do you what do you want more than anything okay here you go or like the quote luther uses i think it's from jeremiah um they worship nothing and therefore they became nothing mm. havel that word havel wow I think in the English, it's usually translated like they worshipped false idols or they worshipped, you know, false gods. But in Hebrew, it's havel, nothing, a yeah. breath. Yeah, and havel you, you hear a lot of Jeremiah in Luther's preaching. Maybe not explicitly, but the character of it, right? You really do, yeah. Well, go read the called articles on the false repentance of the mm-hmm. of the monks, right? Is yeah. it false repentance of the papists or monks? It's, it's the papists, yeah. Yeah, papists, thank you. That's um, Again, there's a lot of stuff in my head, people, so... <laughs> A lot of stuff on my I'm to draw head. It out. Thank you. It's like a bingo tumbler in my head most days. <laughs> I'm just trying to get the right balls out. Just grabbing B6. that balls. B6. Bondage of the will. All right. Of course he regarded the founding of schools and universities as a things well done. That was one of the absolute obligations of a Christian regime in church, state or city, so that people could learn to use reason in adapting themselves to their world and would not become the pawns of the powerful. Mm. Again, Luther's whole point is the reason that the Bible needs to be in German is so that the lady can read it and not become slaves to the papacy or to any leader for that mm-hmm. matter. And this goes back to our point about when I'm teaching Bible study or confirmation, but adult Bible study in particular, I try and remember always to say, or right, I could be wrong. Let's look at the text.
1: Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong.
0: Right. What? Do, what? It, this is what I think the text says is that what you think that is that what you're seeing in the text, or am I importing my presuppositions into the text? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and it does, and it makes uh, lay people generally uncomfortable, at least in my
0: experience, to right, say to them because they've never been given the option to actually contradict right. or say to the pastor, "You're wrong."
1: That's right. I've been sent to you as your pastor right. to preach to you, to teach to you, um, and but I'm but I'm governed by the Word of God, so right. you uh, the same Word of God that you've been entrusted with, right, right. right. So um, if I err um it actually is your your responsibility as a hero yeah, of the your word. Christian
0: duty mm-hmm. yeah as my christian brothers and sisters if you want to love me yeah <laughs> love your neighbor is to say yeah i'm i'm not seeing how you're getting that pastor say more yeah um but also to recognize that my office comes with the authority i don't mm right I'm still a sinner who occupies the office that's established by the Holy Spirit. Which, which,
1: yeah, I mean, you're not, in the Roman world, it was you receive some indelible mark and you can't oh, right, err exactly. in the office. Right. And yeah, we like, get the blue gas. <laughs> we can, no, we can misuse the office God has given, right?
0: Right, absolutely. And think about it this way too, a sinner given the word of God mm. and asked to interpret it for other sinners, inside the office in which the Holy Spirit says, this is how I'm going to work. And if we're going to be Lutheran and we're going to follow the third article of the creed, that's where war happens. Yeah. And so if you really want to see the old Adam go to war with God, go to an adult Bible study.
1: Right. Well, and it's also why, um, you know, generally speaking, uh, I think our people expect us to spend a lot of time in prayer and preparation to, to speak God's word, to preach. Right. 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 They're not surprised when you say, oh, it, well, maybe sometimes they are. But generally speaking, you know, uh, mature mm-hmm. Lutherans will say, you you know, they, they, they're not surprised that you spend T- 10, 20 hours sure. preparing a sermon. It's not like you know, maybe that preparation is just reading uh, Luther or, re- or reading mm-hmm. the text in detail. Um, mm-hmm. But that, that doesn't make them uncomfortable either um, right? B- because they know that that's a sacred responsibility. It's a, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's your obligation to preach faithfully. Um, right. And that, but that can only be done through the word of God and prayer.
0: Right. And I think at least for myself, I think too, as I get older and recognize how much I don't know, mm. That also humbles me. Yeah. And so it's easier for me today to say than let's say 10 years ago. It's easier for me to say today, I've been working on this for 20 years. Mm-mm. And so what do you think? Um, or, you know what? This is a thought experiment. I'm just going to throw it out there. Let's talk about this. Or this is some sanctified speculation. The text doesn't actually say this. Right. But here's the, here's these other texts that I'm drawing from to interpret this text. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Like you know, And I'm not asking, what do you think this means? I'm saying, let's let scripture interpret scripture. Is, is this a straight line from point A to point B, or am I just using other passages of Scripture and kind of, like, like I was saying earlier, kind of corkscrewing this text into what I want it to say based on these other texts?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And that goes back to the point two of, that's what it means to read the Bible within the church. Mm. Or to not read the Bible outside the churches. We're reading the Bible, one, with this great cloud of witnesses around us, theologians, commentators mm-hmm. from previous generations. But then in the present tense, we're reading it together as the body of Christ. We're reading it as, as the church to, again, increase faith and strengthen love for one another. Yeah. By asking the question of the text, how does this point us to Jesus? Well, yeah,
1: and I was thinking of uh, maybe a particular example, Luther talking about the Magnificat, right? And uh, But right before that, the the angel come and announce, angel Gabriel announces to Mary that she will conceive. And his Mm -hmm. speculation, I guess we would say, is that, Mm -hmm. no, it's the word that that announces that that does the thing, right? Right. But what is he running with? He's running with John 1. He's running with Genesis 1. He's running with Mary's womb being, you know, this place of new creation, um, you know, for us. And uh, so, is it the word that says it? Yeah. He does the same with, um, oh, with the Sanctus, mm-hmm. that he says the Sanctus is the, is the like, <laughs> in, in talking about the Deutsche Messe, that that's the definitive moment uh, of mm-hmm. the Lord's presence. And so, he exactly. moved the Sanctus after um, the words of institution. Yes, so Correct. Because the Sanctus there is the confession that heaven and earth are present for us right. here in Christ Jesus in his body and blood, which which is pretty incredible. I mean, because there mm-hmm. it actually had like a real, yeah. <laughs> that's a revolutionary change to the order of the mass. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, and yet, but it's coming right out of the text. I
0: can't, I can't imagine having it anywhere else because hmm. it does. That's the kick. The Christ culture. Well, well regardless says. of
1: whether it's right before the words of institution or it's right after, um, but it, but it is. I mean, it's the confession mm-hmm. of that Christ is here present for us now right. in his body and blood um,
0: right. with saints and angels and the whole host of heaven. And that's a great point, too, that really distinguishes Luther from Erasmus. Mm-hmm. Erasmus is in the academic argument. Luther is saying, "Come Sunday, how is this going to work itself out?" Yeah, Erasmus would be more like, "Well, there's not a
1: lot of historic precedent for that." Right. You know, th- that's going to be his argument. Whereas Luther's going right.
0: to say, "Is going to be well, what does this confess?" Right. Exactly. You know? Not what does it hurt? Mm-hmm. You know, what does it really hurt if we just leave it where it's at? Whereas Luther's saying, "Well, actually, it needs to be moved because this announces Christ's presence, and for the people that are there on Sunday morning, this is really the thing." Yeah. That there's no confusion whatsoever that Jesus is bodily present with us now right. in a very concrete and real way. I don't think Erasmus, reading other, other things I've read by Erasmus, not just on the freedom of the will, he doesn't really care about that. He's well, not really, the concrete he, reality of Christ's presence doesn't really, it's not something he, he needs to address.
1: And like we said, I mean, theology for him is is an academic discipline, whereas yeah. for Luther, it, it it's in the confessional, it's in study, it's in mm-hmm. in the in counsel and care for for people,
0: <laughs> right, right. And I think in the present tense too, we going back to what we were talking about in the beginning. When we come out of seminary, at least in my experience, coming out of seminary, we're kind of hardwired coming out of seminary to think like systematic theologians, mm-hmm. or at least academics in some sense, academics, and try and apply academic topics, arguments, theses, so forth and so on to things that are eminently practical. Mm-hmm. And at least for myself, uh, come, especially when I came out of the graduate program, I ran away from ministry for 10 years, so I didn't come out into the ministry when I was 26, 27, 28. And so coming out with some life experience, coming out of seminary with two kids already, coming out of seminary with a graduate degree, um, having earned a graduate degree and all these other things, having written my dissertation, having taught classes at the seminary, mm-hmm. I thought I knew what it meant to be a pastor because I had studied it for so long. Hmm. And yet that all starts to fall apart when you get into the parish because people go, yeah, I'm not convinced. Or, yeah, I don't believe that. And you're like, you have to believe that. It's in the Lutheran confessions. Hmm. Nah, I just don't. No. And you're like, but, but you have to. <laughs> it's like, no, I don't. It's not, it doesn't apply to my life.
1: Yeah. And this plays out when you ask somebody, uh, what does it mean to be Lutheran? Right. And you probably get as many answers as there are people in the room. Or even Christian, for that matter.
0: Right. And that's what Luther is struggling with, too. He understands that. Mm-hmm. He hears confession. He's visiting parishes, doing all these things, especially in 1525, 26, 27, the Saxon visitations and so forth. People are coming back to it and we're going, um, do you know how bad it is out there right now? Whereas Erasmus is saying, oh, well, what we just need is to educate them. If we educate them, um, there were the critical social theorists, this, this think tank and that came out of Frankfurt in before the Second World War. And they were primarily Jewish um, intellectuals. And they believed that with enough education, people would reject um, socialism, democratic socialism. Okay. Yeah. And obviously, that didn't turn out to be the case. Um, I think uh, Albert Camus or Marcuse, Herbert Marcuse came out of the critical, the Frankfurt School. Mm -hmm. And... A lot of those guys fled Germany obviously because they were Jewish and came to the United States and landed on the east or the west coast as lecturers as academics but a lot of them became very bitter hmm. as a consequence because they had this idea in their mind if we can just educate the german people they will reject hitler and what he is proposing and yet it's the more they wrote the more they published in newspapers the more they they paraded their ideas in front of people it was just silence like people just didn't care and there's a lot behind that. I mean, again, Hitler picked up the economy and, and got people to work again. And there was German nationalism that he was stirring up, and all these different things. He was a skilled that, rhetor- yeah, rhetorician. He was incredible public speaker. All of these things mm-hmm. working against the, the critical social theorists. Um, and so, yeah, it made them very bitter because they expected that, yeah, I'll just educate people, and then they'll understand why he's wrong, and, and they'll reject it. But I mean, it was a Practical revolution is what happened. Right, it, right. It wasn't an academic revolution. And and when I was learning about the Frankfurt School, it, it reminded me a lot of Erasmus's argument hmm. of we just need to educate people, and once they're educated, they'll be more moral, and yeah. they'll reject evil, and they'll they'll recognize the human potential for good, and be a self you know, and want to be self actualized. Mm-hmm it didn't work out that way yeah and you still it, see that play out uh in modern education
1: right mm, if we only absolutely. give people the right set of knowledge then we'll a uh, country yes, will thrive yes, yes. And, and it will be peaceful and prosperity and all the things right. that we want yeah
0: it, it doesn't work
1: and yeah it doesn't quite work out that way you know and you, so then you you see it some cases they flip it and they say well now we're going to teach character right
0: right and for luther the purpose of education is to make better Christians, so to speak, quote unquote, better Christians, the sense of, do you know what you believe? Mm -hmm. Do you have the comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you know about the gifts and that they're there for you? So the purpose for Luther of doing that would be, yeah, I need to have a place where kids can go, where we can teach them the basics of the faith. And in teaching them the faith, we're teaching them their letters. We're teaching them... Education, we're educating them. Yeah. Liter- it, it's a literary education, less so than right.
1: like a trade or a, or a virtue right. education.
0: But the point is for Luther, it's to basically strengthen faith and improve, again, strengthen faith and increase love for one another within the church. Mm-hmm. Primarily. Christ. Versus for Erasmus, it is about improving society as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Which again, Luther is more of a charismatic reformer, and Erasmus is more of a moral reformer, and so you see the difference. Yeah. And by the way, Luther thought the world was going to end in his lifetime, <laughs> and therefore the urgency of what Luther does as opposed to Erasmus, who's like, I can play the long game, whereas Luther's convinced Jesus is coming back in my lifetime. Yeah, yeah. I don't have time to play around. Yeah, He's because of the, the destructive force of the Turks in particular, the Turks, the plagues, mm-hmm. everything. Yeah, you know. So, yeah, context matters. Context does influence our theology, whether we want to admit it or not. Hmm. What Luther saw on the horizon were the dark clouds of... Oh, there here we go. <laughs> what Luther saw on the horizon were the dark clouds of divine judgment gathering over a world nearing its end, a world fettered and enslaved in a thousand ways that insisted on self-determination before God, that dared to speculate about the meaning of history and to speak of freedom of the will without being able to free itself from the paralyzing primeval fear of being trapped hopelessly in the cage of an impenetrable world history.
1: Mm. All we are rats in Exactly.
0: Luther and Erasmus two realities, not the middle ages versus the modern era, but two interpretations of man and history drawn from divergent perspectives and experiences, neither of them indisputably obsolete or progressive. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's a fat paragraph right there. It is. These are big words. Yeah, he is very German. Mm-hmm. But essentially, Luther believes the world's going to end. Jesus is coming back in judgment. And why are we talking about free will when we we can't even break out of our primeval fear of being trapped in a cage mm-hmm. by God's judgment or you know Jesus coming back to judge us, uh,
1: the the Jesus of the rainbow. Well, it reminds me of how uh, CFW Walther picks up on, on kind of Luther's objective in preaching, right? That we sure. always preach for conversion every time. Right, right. You know, not presuming, not knowing, um, you know, who is saved and who isn't. That isn't the question that we're given to answer, but always right. preaching for the justification of the sinner every time. Right.
0: Well, and I like, um, I can't remember where Luther uses this, but I think uh, Sazi picks up on it. Nagel, I think, picks up on it is Luther will also use the language of translation, Mm. that Jesus translates us into the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Immediately, right? Through his word. With his word. Yeah, mm-hmm. literally. And I think you know, for you and I, like you were saying, as far as like doing translation work for a sermon prep, uh, we're very familiar with the language of translation and what is happening when you're translating words. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the assertion that the word of God translates us. Personally. Personally, is like he said, it's not are you a medieval or a modern? Are you pre-modern, post-modern, but rather there are two realities at play. Hmm. There's the reality that you think is a manifestation, a projection of your mind of what's going on in your head. And then there's the actual reality of what God creates. Right. You are baptized.
1: You are my child. Exactly. I I forgive you.
0: (laughs) Right. And so what, what God's word does is it converts, Mm -hmm. but it, it in actual fact, translates you from one reality into another reality. And, that's really what the symbol is, is this double sense of reality, a double sense of the self, yeah being trapped between these two aeons, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, analog- the analogy is actually the
1: transfiguration where you have Christ himself, who is with God and man, right? Right. And right. <laughs> he stands before him, and it's, and it's Jesus only, um, God made flesh, um, but but they're given a glimpse of, you know, life of eternity. And we have that too. Right. I mean, we're here, we're, we're dying <laughs> mm-hmm. one day at a time. Um, but we get a glimpse living yeah we get the glimpse of you are you're you baptized you you are with right. me in, in eternity a foretaste of the feast to come mm-hmm. which i always eh, that expression i like it and i don't yeah because i know I'm, a, I'm with you is it a is it a entree or is it the entree or is it actually just <laughs> an appetizer right. no it's not an appetizer <laughs> it's the it's legit thing it is yeah yeah yeah, yeah. maybe just not face to face maybe we just need to use bigger wafers
0: Ooh, with more, give everybody a bun with, with, a, with a more detailed stamp on it. There you go. A, a bun, maybe like a buttered bun, like from Culver's. And then uh, everybody gets their own chalice of wine. Everyone is translated by in ecstasy. Can you imagine Midwestern Lutherans being presented with a full chalice of wine? That's And you're like, no, no, actually, this is just for you.
2: <laughs>
0: oh, I'm sorry. This is the blood of Christ. You have to finish this before you leave.
2: Yeah, no leftovers. It
0: would, it would certainly make for a really rousing final hymn. Yeah, people would
1: linger a little while, probably.
0: <laughs> Amongst other things. Right, I think yeah, the whole debate about early communion would probably go right out the window mm. at that point too. <laughs> yeah, and then
1: then you'd you'd have to come up with this ecclesiastical designated driver scheme.
0: <laughs> the, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Did you call Uber or what? I mean, how do we make this work? Uh,
0: we gotta get these get people those party home. Buses. Have to rent a party bus. <laughs> there you go.
1: We'll drop you off. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs>
0: Leave your yeah. Instead of mailboxes by the front door, you have just the key hooks. You like just leave your keys here. Come back, get your car tomorrow.
1: Dear listeners, if you've made it with us this long, you know that we're just joking.
0: I hope right. We're absolutely one hundred percent joking sixty percent of the time. <laughs> oh, that's good. So yeah, that, that wraps up this section in in uh, overmont on on Luther and Erasmus, but um. No, it's, it's such a, he, he, again, he just has such a great way of presenting the argument and covering the history in a way that up until that last paragraph is imminently readable. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and the idea, but the idea that that we have to, um, we have to kind of like interpret history and we have to be slaves to history even, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Rather as Luther is, is very uh, momentary. You know, yeah. this, this, right. this is now the moment. This is
0: right. Um, yeah. I don't think Luther would be a big fan of those who ignore history are um, bound to repeat it. Mm, right. I think Luther would just be like, um, no, we just do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like we just do repeat history because we can't not. That's the,
1: as a scholar of, uh, of the Bible, you know, of, of the, yeah. the history of, of God's people.
0: It's like, right. Exactly. Yeah, Read Chronicles. Right. I was going to say, if you can make it out of the book of the Kings or Chronicles, mm-hmm. With a with a really high anthropology, I don't think you're reading it right.
1: And they repented, and right. they fell into false god worship. And well, they went like after when false we read gods.
0: that in the Bible study class, it, it's it, one of the things that this old lady said. I read, and they were in exile for forty years. And she's like, "Only forty years? That's a record. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. And so true. Yeah, you know, you're like, wow. They that, they repented fast compared to these other ones. <laughs> well done uh, <laughs> <laughs> a lifetime yeah a lifetime but yeah that's the that's the hubris of the old adam of well we're not, we laugh at them because they're stupid and we would never do that again and that really is the fatal error mm-hmm. of reading yourself into the bible because you can't look at it objectively and recognize oh yeah we do the same thing yeah been there done that Oh. We mess around with God's house. We mess around with what's on the altar. We mess around with His word. We, the priests mess around and take the best, uh, the first fruits, and the f- best fat for themselves. Mm-hmm. We're constantly monkeying with God and with His word mm. and with His His prescriptions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the the, the old Adam's whole project is: we'll take whatever God says descriptively and turn it into a prescription, mm. prescription, and then we'll take whatever God says prescriptively and turn it into a description. Mm. And that mm. way, we can like God said, you're supposed to do that. He commanded it. Did he really though? Or is it more just a description of what he, you know, it's more like, again, it's not a rule so much as it's a set of principles. A nice idea. It's a nice idea versus, well, you really should do it this way. That means that we absolutely must do it that way forever now. Mm. That's right. Yeah. That's, it's just constant because mm. <laughs> again, did God really say, and the fruit was desirable to eat. So we like knowledge. Right. Or in Aaron's case, I didn't want to do it. They made me and I'm just their pastor. Yeah. And I made it work, you know?
1: Yeah, exactly. I made it work. I made it work. We just call it you. It's okay. Yeah. Or, or your footstool. It's you know, yeah. it's kind of... Right. It's an avatar. It's a...
0: Right. It's like if you came to church on Sunday and there was a statue of Aphrodite on the altar instead of Jesus, and I just say to the people, don't worry, I can make this work. Mm. <laughs> we can be flexible. Right, right. I'm sure I can draw an analogy to Jesus out mm. of oh, this female... No, I don't I don't think that's a good idea, Pastor.
1: <laughs> no, we just put Mary on the side instead. There we go. Yeah.
0: Oh, you naughty boy. Mm. But anyways, I, I have nothing else to add to that this week. Uh, that's a good section. Uh, go check it out. Again, we started on page 215. Yep. Went through page 218. Luther, God between... God between man and the devil. Luther, man between God and the devil. And... uh as always, go uh, check out uh, the other podcasts uh, from Higher Things. We've got some new additions, mm-hmm. some legacy content for you to check out. Yeah. Um, what else? Go buy Gillespie's coffee. He has kids to feed. He may be moving soon. We don't know. Oh, yeah. I uh, didn't announce it at the beginning. Could have. Yeah. No one listens to this podcast, so feel free. And we're 136 into it.
1: Well, by the time you listen to this, who even knows what will be true anymore at that point? But, uh, yeah. Right. No, I, I said May. A- Received a divine call. <laughs> maybe moving. Maybe
0: not. We'll see. Divine call. and uh, That's what we call it. We call it a divine I know. call. I know. And, and people ask, well, how do you know when you were called? I said, because I got a phone call. And like, what? I'm like, I literally got a phone call. The council president went, he want to be our pastor? And you're not supposed <laughs> to tell anybody until you get papers in the mail. That's when it's actually right, exactly. divine is when the papers show we, up we at the door. Prayerfully, we, we prayerfully consider this by announcing it on social media. Yes. And then... <laughs> Literally 24 hours later, we're like, and ta-da, we're already Here's the thing,
1: you know, know, God gives you your wife, um, so she gets to be God's messenger on this one.
0: That's right, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Um, I'm going to call that divine, so there you go. Right, and what is wrong with acknowledging that God works through means? I mean, we say that all the time, it's like the council president called you on a telephone does that is there any more like concrete and real way for god to tell you he wants you to be a pastor than literally getting a phone call did
1: we did we talk about this in the past but uh, i know it was a tangent we were trying to end the show but whatever um that uh i have some relative and i have his biography he was a pastor in missouri it back yeah. in the 1850s yeah that he accepted every call he received wow so he was in the ministry hmm. about 40 years and he ended up serving something like 15 or 18 places because Whoa. a year later somebody would call you and you and yeah. you'd go. No kidding. That was their doctrine of the call. Was he single? Mm. No, he was married with kids. Wow. So That's he'd get called to of... a place. He didn't even they didn't get documents in those days. They would yeah, call right. you to be the pastor. He'd get there and he'd be like, Oh, actually you're going to teach in the school. <laughs> mm. And so then you just do it because they right. called you. Very different there's
0: picture. There's something nice about that though. Yeah. It's like But not knowing what you're walking into and being forced to adapt, being spontaneous. Just figure it out. Yeah, he was yeah, kind of exactly. bitter, actually, about it. <laughs> I can't imagine. Oh, <laughs> well, he's German, oh, so did whatever. Oh, you, did you need a parsonage? Because we don't have one of those. Did we not tell you
1: that? Oh, yeah. By the way, you're also teaching in the one-room schoolhouse.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah, you're Figure responsible for starting the, getting the wood stove going in the morning for mm-hmm. us. Yeah. yeah. We're going to pay you with grain. <laughs> just don't complain. Right. That's, you know, my predecessors, that's what they were paid with. It was like, you get $2 a month plus a bag of grain and some produce.
1: Yeah, well, Luther had that cushy salary at, um, uh, yeah. at the university, and they tell you I, it's its extent. You can actually find out. oops yeah. how many bar- barrels of beer? I don't can't remember. Just Yeah, because yeah. Katie was... probably sold it to the university, and then the university gives it back to him as pay. Right,
0: um. right. <laughs> Germans. <laughs> They'll figure
1: out a way to make this
0: all that's know, right. the
1: economy of this work. That's right.
0: Mm. But regardless of how the call comes, we are we are grateful and we appreciate that you have answered our call to listen to this podcast. Mm, nice. Well, done. Was that was that really as, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, that's so smarmy. <laughs> but as always, we do appreciate you listening, especially if you've stuck with us this long. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's anything that you would like us to read on the air, please send us a message or text us. Email us at higher things dot o r g media at higher things or podcasts at higher things.org yeah um shows how often i get emailed and (laughs) with ideas but check out the coffee check out the podcast check out the website uh do what you got to do to support the mission of higher things and as always we love you and we'll uh, talk to you next time see ya
3: You summoned me, Dr. Frankenstein? Indeed I did, Igor. I wanted to tell you that I'm retiring from the business of monster creation to do something that requires even more genius. What's that, Doctor? Coffee roasting, Igor. There are so many wonderfully complex variables to busy my intellect with. Try the end product, Igor. It's brilliant. And delicious. Not bad, Doctor. But have you considered just ordering your coffee pre-roasted? Preposterous, Igor. No one else has the scientific attention to detail that this enterprise requires. What about coffee by Gillespie? Coffee by Gillespie? Christopher Gillespie is a master at selecting high-quality specialty coffee beans that are as sustainable as they are tasty. And to roast them to their finest, he uses traditional techniques combined with the latest technology. Something a scientist like you should appreciate, Doctor. Indeed, indeed. But the coffee, Igor, is it any good? Everything about Coffee by Gillespie is done with taste in mind. Gillespie even ships your coffee directly to your address, so it doesn't lose its delectable flavor sitting on the store shelf. You've convinced me, Igor. Coffee by Gillespie clearly has me beat for coffee new-how. Where may I get some? Just go online to gillespie.coffee and order any time. Let it be done, Igor. But opt for the decaf. Frankie can be a handful when he's had too much caffeine. (laughs) Coffee by Gillespie. It's brilliant, and it's delicious.